Turn your Bibles to John chapter 7. We're going to be looking today at verses 14 through 36. I'm thankful for Pastor Brent to give me the opportunity to speak to you today. And um, we can all pray that he has a great time away with his family this week, uh, a much-earned vacation for him. And um, let me just say, he's been doing a great job uh, preaching through Hebrews, especially these last few weeks in Hebrews 11. So I know the bar is set really high. Um, But today, we're going to move over to the Gospel of John. I'm going to continue my series there. Um, While you're turning there, if you're still turning, um, I just want to review briefly John's purpose in writing his Gospel. He tells us in chapter 20 that he could have written many other things. But the things that he wrote in his Gospel specifically, he wrote those so that we would believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, so that by believing we would have life in his name. Now, I know it's been a while since I preached my last sermon in the Gospel of John, and um, even longer if you stagger out, like, all the way from the beginning. So I'm going to briefly review where we are in the Gospel of John, and then we'll jump into our text for today. In chapter 2, Jesus went to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And there he cleansed the temple by driving out the money changers, the sheep, the oxen, and those selling pigeons. Many believed in Jesus when they saw the signs he was doing, But it was not genuine faith, so Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. He knew it was in their hearts. He knew it wasn't genuine faith. Then in chapter 5, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for another feast. And there he healed a man at the pool of Bethesda who had been disabled for 38 years. The Jewish leaders were furious with Jesus. And, um, you know, Pastor Brent's trying to get a question out there, see if we can get any, an answer from the audience. So this is a question for the children today or maybe a teenager. And if they don't have an answer, we'll see if any adults have an answer. Why were the religious leaders furious at Jesus for healing the paralyzed man? Does anybody know? If you know, just blurt out nice and loud. Awesome, awesome. It's because it was on the Sabbath, all right? So Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath. So they were upset with him. And then when Jesus defended himself, instead of kind of brushing it off and saying, no, I wasn't really working, or, you know, some kind of simple explanation, Jesus' answer was basically claiming equality with God. He said, you know, God's working on the Sabbath, and so I work on the Sabbath too. And as you can imagine, that made the religious leaders even more upset and they began seeking to kill Jesus. So in chapter 6, Jesus has left Jerusalem. He's left Judea. He's gone back north to Galilee. He finds his way on the far side of the Sea of Galilee, and out there in a wilderness in the middle of nowhere, the crowd finds him, and they don't have any food. And Jesus miraculously fed 5,000 men. And the result of this sign is the multitude responded by attempting to seize Jesus, and force him to become king. So Jesus withdrew himself from the crowd, and to make a long story short, he walked across the Sea of Galilee to the disciples' boat, calmed a storm, and returned to, Gal- or returned to Capernaum. When the crowd caught up with Jesus in Capernaum, Jesus taught what we know as the bread of life discourse. And there were some really hard statements that Jesus made as he taught, and many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. The twelve continued with Jesus because they recognized that he has the words of eternal life, and they have believed him and know Jesus to be the Holy One of God. 
So chapter 7 that Dan read just a moment ago, as chapter 7 begins in the, in the, with the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus' ministry probably looked like it was in crisis at this point. Many of his disciples have abandoned him. Jesus has now restricted his travels to Galilee and would not go to Judea because the Jewish religious leaders were trying to kill him. Jesus' own brothers, who did not believe in him, challenged him to go to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, the most popular of the Jewish feasts that would bring all of the faithful flocking to Jerusalem. They wanted Jesus to make himself known openly, to show his works to everyone. Jesus refused to listen to his brothers because he knew that it was not the right time. Jesus listened to his father, not his brothers. Later, however, Jesus did go privately to the feast in Jerusalem. And there we find that people in Jerusalem were divided about Jesus. Some thought he was a good man. Others thought he was leading the people astray. But so far, it has been a relatively quiet feast with some quiet muttering about Jesus. No one dared speak openly about him because of fear of the Jews. Which brings us to our text for today in John chapter 7, and let's look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. So this verse sets the scenario for what's going to happen in our, in our passage today. Okay, we, we have a time marker, and so this is kind of how I've arranged my sermons in, the chap, in chapter 7 here. This is happening about the middle of the feast. So the first part was the beginning of the feast. This is the middle of the feast. My next sermon will start in verse 37 on the last day of the feast. So we get some, some time markers to break up this Feast of Tabernacles. Today we're going to talk about what happened about the middle of the feast. But there's a very significant statement here that tells us about Jesus that he went up into the temple and began to teach. This is very significant for a number of reasons. Okay, first, this is the first time recorded in John's gospel that Jesus taught publicly in Jerusalem. Second, Jesus is teaching in the temple during the most popular feast of the year. So people would have been present from all over the country and beyond the country. Those who practice Judaism, if they were able to go to Jerusalem, they would have gone to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. And of course, we can't ignore the fact that the religious leaders would have been there. In the temple, as Jesus goes into the temple and begins to teach, the religious leaders who want to kill Jesus are there for this feast. So I think a final point we can make here as Jesus goes in and begins to teach is that we can now know that Jesus has demonstrated that when he was being secretive and private earlier in the chapter, that that was not out of fear. But it was because he was in tune with the Father's timing. Now that the timing is right, Jesus is boldly doing almost exactly what his brothers had wanted him to do. Several exchanges take place in the next several verses where Jesus answers three important questions about himself and his ministry. And Jesus doesn't always answer their questions directly. So today I'm going to focus more on the questions that Jesus answered than on the questions that he was asked. And the first question that Jesus answered is, where did Jesus get his teaching? So let's look at verse 15. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? 
The Jews are surprised at Jesus' knowledge given his lack of formal training. Now, typically in Jesus' day, teachers would be trained either in one of the great rabbinical centers of learning, or they would learn under a famous rabbi. Maybe you can think of the Apostle Paul under Gamaliel. And teachers in Jesus' day would certainly not go out and just teach their own message, go out and do their own thing. Um, They were very, very careful to substantiate every pronouncement by appealing to precedent, to some earlier rabbinic, rabbinic judgment. And, you know, as we relate this to today, I mean, for those of you maybe teenagers or young adults, if you've written a research paper, you know that if you're, gonna, if you're really going to push the argument in your paper, that, that you have to cite credible sources to, to really make your paper credible. And, and maybe some of you older adults like me can remember writing research papers as well. So, what we would do in a research paper where we try to um, cite credible sources, this is how the rabbis taught. They would do this in their teaching. They would always be citing some authority who had said this to give credibility to their teaching. But Jesus did not have formal training like that. Jesus did not get trained in a rabbinical center of learning. He didn't sit under a famous rabbi. And so the crowd is amazed that how did Jesus have such a command of Scripture? Now, I would point out that this Jesus' command of Scripture is consistent with what we find in the rest of the Gospels. You might might remember when Jesus was 12, and he was in the temple talking to the religious leaders in the temple at the age of 12, and they were amazed at his knowledge of the Scriptures. So truly, Jesus did have an incredible knowledge of the scriptures. But where did he get that learning from? Well, let's look at his answer in verse 16. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. So Jesus insists here that this is not his own teaching. This teaching comes from the one who sent him. Jesus is not out there doing his own thing with his own message. He is delivering the message that he has been sent with. And Jesus gives two let's say, evidences, maybe, to to give credibility to his teaching. And the first thing Jesus says is he says that anyone who genuinely seeks to do God's will will know that Jesus' teaching is from God. Now, throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus is closely connected to the Father. We're going to see this all throughout the Gospel, that he he comes from the one who sent him, and he's always referring to the one who sent him, and he's fulfilling the purpose of the one who sent him. So here... He makes the statement that if you are genuinely seeking to, God, to do God's will, if you know God's will, then you will know that my teaching is from God. And the second thing that Jesus does to give credibility to his teaching is he says that his teaching is true or reliable because he's not seeking his own glory, but the glory of the one who sent him. And we find this all throughout the gospel that Jesus is not out there to make a name for himself. He's out to make a name for his father, for the one who sent him. So the Jews question Jesus' credentials as a teacher. And after answering their questions, 
Jesus turns the tables on them and questions their credentials as students. Look at verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Jesus confronts the Jewish leaders as hypocrites here because they claim to follow the law of Moses. They accept Moses' teaching as being from God. And yet Jesus says that they don't keep the law. And here's exhibit A. They're trying to kill Jesus. The law says thou shalt not kill. Well, the crowd responds in verse 20. The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? The crowd, they accuse Jesus of being demon-possessed. They think he's crazy. Why would he say someone's trying to kill him? Nobody's trying to kill him. What's he talking about? So here, I think I'm probably willing to give the crowd the benefit of the doubt in what they're saying. They're wrong, but you have to remember the timing here. This is a, a feast where people have gathered from all around. People have traveled from far away, from outside Jerusalem, who very well might not be aware that the Jewish religious authorities in Jerusalem are seeking to kill Jesus. So they might, they might be seriously questioning that, but they're wrong. So look how Jesus responds in verse 21. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So Jesus responds by saying, I did one work. And clearly, I think this is referring to John chapter 5, where Jesus healed the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda. And he did it on the Sabbath. So how does Jesus defend himself? He appeals to the law of Moses. Remember, these people claim to follow the law of Moses. They claim to believe that the law, that, that the law of Moses came from God. And so Jesus goes to the law to defend himself. And basically, he says that, you know, you have a command to observe the Sabbath. You have a command to circumcise on the eighth day. And when those two laws conflict, one takes priority over the other. Leon Morris puts it this way in his explanation. He says, so binding did they regard the command to circumcise on the eighth day that they held this to override the Sabbath. Thus, though they would scrupulously avoid all manner of things that even remotely looked like work, lest the Sabbath be profaned, they had no hesitation in carrying out the ritual requirement of circumcision on that day. Had they understood the significance of what they were doing, they would have seen that a practice that overrode the Sabbath in order to provide for the ceremonial needs of a man justified the overriding of the Sabbath in order to provide for the bodily healing of a man. They should have recognized that if it's okay to, to, to overlook the Sabbath, the law on the Sabbath, to take care of a ceremonial need that's required, that it's okay to overlook the Sabbath to heal a whole man's body and make it well. And so Jesus says, don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So quickly, just bringing this back to 2020, I think, um, you know, we are maybe in the most divisive time in my lifetime, 
right now where people are on polar opposites and, and just very little agreement, it seems like. And so we want to be really careful in this area because I think our human nature is that we kind of fixate on one thing that's our thing and we become experts at it and we proclaim it and we defend it and we argue for it and we might be missing other parts. We might be missing the big picture. And we might, most of all, we might be overlooking the fact that we're to love our brothers in whatever we're doing. So Jesus answers the question, where did his teaching come from? It came from the one who sent him. Now let's look at the second question that Jesus answers. Where did Jesus come from? Verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Notice, notice who's talking here. It's some of the people of Jerusalem. Okay, these are the locals. These are the people who live in Jerusalem. They know the, the political... Um, feeling in Jerusalem, they realize that the religious leaders are trying to kill somebody. And now they put two and two together and they realize, oh, Jesus must be the one that the religious leaders are trying to kill. And you see how they respond to that? They start to assume, okay, Jesus just walked into the temple. He's teaching openly and they don't do anything about it. Maybe the religious leaders now believe he's the Messiah. But interestingly, the crowd rejects that, or these people in Jerusalem, they reject that thinking because they say that they know where this man comes from, and when the Messiah comes, no, one's gonna, no one will know where he comes from. Now, I'm not real familiar with this doctrine, and I can say that it wasn't universally held by Jews. I mean, we're going to find even later in the chapter that there were people that had an expectation that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem, um, even when... The wise men were, were, went to see King Herod and, and got him all stirred up. And King Herod asked the chief priest, you know, where is the Messiah going to be born? Well, they came up with the answer in Bethlehem. So, so this, this doctrine certainly wasn't universally held. But some of these people in Jerusalem, they're, they're saying Jesus can't be the Messiah because they know where he comes from. And they, they don't believe that anyone's going to know where the Messiah comes from. Well, let's look at Jesus' response in verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple. So with all of these exchanges that are taking place, Jesus is still kind of in the middle of his teaching. Jesus says, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. As Jesus responds here, he addresses three, three different entities. So first, he talks about these people and their knowledge. And notice what he says. He says three things about them. He says, you know me. You know where I come from. Now, we might actually dispute that, right? Do they really know Jesus? Do they really know where he came from? But, but Jesus is not trying to, to fix that. He's not trying to set the record straight on that. He just, he just acknowledges that. They think they know him. They know where he came from. He'll give them that. But the strong statement that he says about their, their knowledge is the third one. He says, you don't know the one who sent me. He's saying they don't know God. And, and this is really, like I said earlier, this is where we're getting to in the gospel of John. 
if you don't know who Jesus is, you don't really know God. If you don't believe in Jesus, you don't really believe in God. If you don't worship Jesus, you don't worship God. Because the only way to the Father is through Jesus. That's, that's what John's gospel is getting at. So here Jesus makes this statement, they don't know the one who sent him. But look what Jesus says concerning his own coming. Jesus says that he didn't come of his own accord. Jesus knows the one who sent him. So contrast that with these other people. They don't know the one who sent him. Jesus says he knows the one who sent him. And Jesus came from the one who sent him. That's his origin. That's where he came from. So when I ask the question, where did Jesus come from? He came from the one who sent him. He came from God. And there are two subtle things that Jesus then says about concerning the one who sent him. He says first that the one who sent him is true. The one who sent him is real. And the second thing is, is kind of an obvious thing, but I, th I think it's worth saying is that the one who sent him, sent him. Okay, and what I mean by that is, is Jesus is here on a mission. He was sent by God with a purpose, a mission to fulfill. And everything that Jesus does is in accordance with the Father's will. He's seeking to do the right thing at the right time to fulfill the Father's mission for him. Well, there are two responses to Jesus if you look back at verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So the two responses to Jesus are one response is the Jewish authorities are still seeking to arrest Jesus. But it's interesting, no one laid a hand on him. And why? Because his hour had not yet come. Now, this is a repeated refrain throughout the Gospel of John that his hour had not yet come. And eventually we're going to get to the point where his hour has come. Um, we don't have time to get into that this morning. Um, but what I will say about this is, is an observation that, that Klink made in his commentary where he said, Jesus had just made clear that the people do not know God. And now the narrator makes it clear that the people cannot stop God. No one can lay a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. They want to, but they can't. Well, the second response to Jesus' words is that many of the people believed in him. And we know what they're thinking. The author tells us. In their minds, they're thinking, well, when the Messiah comes, will he do more works than this man? And the answer in their mind is no. So they believe in him. And, and the signs fulfill their purpose. That these people, they see the signs and they believe in Jesus. So that's one of the responses to Jesus. So that second question again was, where did Jesus come from? He came from the one who sent him. Now briefly, let's consider the third question Jesus answers. Where is Jesus going? And in this case, he answers the question before it's asked. His answer actually raises the question. So let's look at verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. A couple interesting observations from this verse is the crowd is still muttering about Jesus. They're, they're not quite ready to speak openly about Jesus because of fear of the Jewish leaders. And yet, even with all their whisperings, as Dan's translation said, or these mutterings, 
the, the Jewish leaders have got wind of this. They've heard something. They, they're probably catching on that people are believing in Jesus. Or maybe they're getting wind of the fact that, is it possible the religious authorities now believe Jesus is the Messiah? Well, they've got to set the record straight on that, don't they? And so they spring into action and they immediately send officers to arrest Jesus. They take action. And here Jesus responds by making several startling statements. Let's look at verse 33. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. So Jesus, several statements just in this one little verse, but he's not going to be with them much longer. He's going to go to the one who sent him. And even though they will seek him, they won't find him. And where he is, they won't be able to come. So Jesus answers the question, where is he going? He's going back to the one who sent him. Well, let's look. I want to mention um, something Carson says here in his commentary. He says, Jesus has but a short time before the cross, the means by which he returns to the one who sent him. Death is not for Jesus, the end, but the return to the glory he had with the Father before the world began. His being lifted up to where he was before. But the Jews have no idea what Jesus is talking about. So look at verse 35. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? They just don't understand. And so the only possible explanation they can think of where Jesus might go, where they wouldn't be able to go to him, is, is Jesus going to go to the, the Jews that are spread out among the Gentiles? Or is Jesus going to go directly to the Gentiles? I mean, of course, they would never go there, but they don't understand. But Jesus told us where he's going. He's going to the one who sent him. So as we wrap all of this up today and these three questions Jesus answers and these exchanges, what I want you to see in our text today is that Jesus took decisive action. At the right time, in accordance with his Father's will, Jesus revealed himself publicly in Jerusalem for everyone to see. He boldly taught openly in the temple. At a time when people were picking sides on where they stood with Jesus, is he a good man? Is he a deceiver? Jesus answered three important questions about himself to help clear up his identity. Where did Jesus get his teaching? From the one who sent him. Where did Jesus come from? From the one who sent him. Where is Jesus going? To the one who sent him. Jesus clearly identifies himself with God the Father. And the result of Jesus' bold action and message is that many believed in him. Others sought to kill him. The stakes have been raised. This is no longer about whether Jesus is a good man or a bad man. People are deciding, is Jesus the Messiah or not? So how about you? First, do you believe Jesus is the Messiah who came from God, whose teaching was from God, who perfectly lived his life according to his Father's will, who willingly died on a cross to pay for our sins, who rose again three days later, and who returned to be with God, seated with him in heaven? 
Have you trusted Jesus as your Savior? He is God's promised one who came to rescue and to save. Second, do you have bold faith like Jesus? Pastor Brent's been talking for several weeks now in Hebrews 11 about bold faith. Do you have bold faith like Jesus to follow God's plan for you regardless of the cost? Jesus did not hesitate to follow his father's plan. He was always looking to do the right thing at the right time to accomplish his father's mission. Third, do you judge by appearances or do you make right judgment? Do you get so hung up on one thing that you ignore other commands in Scripture? Do you miss the big picture? Do you fail to love your brother while fixating on one thing that's important to you? Galatians 6.10 says, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So may God help us this week to trust in Jesus, our Messiah, to have bold faith like Jesus, regardless of the cost, and to make right judgments as we love God and love neighbor. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and what it reveals to us about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, who came to take away the sins of the world, who was not afraid to face death, but willingly suffered in our place so we could find forgiveness of sins. Father, we thank you for the scriptures that we have to tell us about this Jesus. And I pray that you would help us this week to faithfully follow Jesus, to obey his words, to obey his commands, to have bold faith. Father, would you help us this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.